Hello and welcome to Horus Heretics. I'm William. I'm Neil. And today we're talking about uh, book number four, Flight of the Eisenstein. And we're going to look at the first half of that book. And we've been cramming to get this read. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> finished it this morning. <laughs> finished it last night, but... Um, it's all yeah. right. We've read it all before anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this is... I mean, I kind of thought... I forgot how closely tied into the books we've already read this was. Me I thought this too. kind of was entirely going on to new stuff, but no, the entire first half is getting us up to a point that we've already covered. Um, yeah, this this is where um, they weren't thinking of podcasters when they wrote these books, because <laughs> we've literally read all of this before. Not just like we've read the books before, but a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> we read it all before because it's describing the same bloody events. I think it, hopefully that will make it easier for us though to actually keep a track of where we are in the story. But anyway, the th- the difference with this book is we're focusing on the Death Guard. The um, these guys, I like. <laughs> okay, like yeah. we always talk about the the the, the gimmicks and. <laughs> The gimmick, the gimmick of the Death Guard is that their leader is the Grim Reaper, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is a strong hook. It is a really strong gimmick. Um, yeah. Uh, um, well, that's a good point to start, isn't it? Let's let's have a look at. So we've got a whole. This took me a bit of getting used to. I was so used to Targaryen and all the rest of them. Fuck. Now I'm having guys. to learn all these new names. There, there, uh, there are so many character introductions in so little time. Yeah, um, but let's have a, let's have a brief overview of some of the important characters. You've mentioned Mortarian already, the Primarch, who is essentially the Grim Reaper. That's a good start. He's um, he's he's like it's it, it's not just like he's like that. They they mention <laughs> that on Old Earth there are these like traditions and myths of. Um, uh, a reaper of death or someone who comes to people in their last seconds of life and stuff. And then they describe Mortarian. He's very tall, gaunt, skeletal. He carries an enormous scythe. <laughs> he has a dark robe with a hood. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Fine. And he calls himself the Lord of Death. I, I know what they're going for. And um, I'm I'm all, all about it. And Garrow, who we've mentioned before, is a good character. Like, he's described well he's not as hateful as all the other protagonists really he's kind of like a, a improved version of woken sort of isn't he like he's a little bit of a fish out of water with his legion and he's obviously not a bad guy <laughs> yeah it, much. exactly i think maybe in any other book i'd be like i hate this guy but because he's just not a total prick uh, <coughs> i'm sort of on his side a little bit because everyone else suffers from that and he's he's called disparagingly by a character we'll get onto in just a moment straight arrow garrow (laughs) this this is where all the books have one commonality is when they they fall over it's like garvey is called or garviel is called garvey and uh what's what does torgadon uh he always calls him like a, a, a star charge <laughs> and and we've got straight arrow, straight arrow Garrow introducing a rhyming scheme into the thing. Um, it's just it's a little bit crushing to my 
sort of spirit when I whenever I read this stuff. But did you the the the, um, the guy who used that phrase is a character called Grolgore. <laughs> Uh, when I was reading this, the, these two guys were introduced at the same time. There were two. Garo is one of the the captains of the Death Guard, and two others at the same sort of level. Um, and William, forget that you've read this, and okay. uh, you're coming anew to this. Okay. So, tell me, are these good guys or are these bad guys? Okay. We've got somebody called Callus Typhon. And another called Ignatius Grulgore. Now, just from those names, are they good or are they bad? And before well, you answer, before you answer, Callus Typhon has a huge horn in the middle of his head. <laughs> These characters have been established in the Warhammer 40,000 pantheon as like chaos, uh, you know, bad guys, basically, right? Yeah. And <laughs> now they're having to like. They're having to go back and explain the story of how they sort of became bad guys, but they've already got names like Typhon. <laughs> yeah, and, I suppose. Like, because he's presumably called Typhon because the Death Guard become Nurgle followers yeah. who are all about plague and pestilence and stuff like that. So presumably Typhon is sort of like Typhus or whatever. Well, uh, uh, it, that in whenever they do turn, he, he changes his name. He is known as Typhus. Right, okay, right. Right, yeah. so uh, so so yeah, they're just kind of working backwards from the point that anyway. But, but Grogor, on that note, I thought of all the sort of like pantomime bad guys that we've encountered in this uh, series, Grogor is absolutely at the apex. I love him. I love him. He he is not even one dimensional. Like he doesn't make it to that level. He's like all I could think of when I was reading him was like. He's like a stereotype school bully character. He's like, um, I don't know, like in Harry Potter or something, you know, someone <laughs> yeah. from Slytherin who's just saying mean things to Ron Weasley. That's yeah. basically <laughs> the, the kind of chat that he was coming out with. Yeah, there, there is not a line where he isn't sneering or mocking or something. Honestly, I think there, even when he's talking to his friends, <laughs> yeah. he, he is, he's like taking offense to everything that's mentioned to him. And he's just like, Arr. every line I read of his was in a sort of growly, throaty voice. You, you know, like Garu talks like us. Grulgor in the audiobooks, I hope they're like, <laughs> <laughs> so those are the kind of um, some they're, of the they're the bad guys. <laughs> the bad guys, yeah. If you hadn't picked that up, yeah. Um, but Garrow's uh, amongst Garrow's friends, if you like, on, amongst the in the Legion, we have this is where I was thinking. You know, you you might be you might have been thinking after the we'd left behind the sons of Horus that um, the kind of banter you saw between Torgadon and. Uh, Woken and all the rest of them would be over, but no. far from it. <laughs> no, I, I th see. I loved this bit where, whenever his um, his squad or whatever is introduced, because it is total bad action movie fare. You know, like <laughs> yeah. in um, uh, what's that thing with the uh, the Verhoeven movie with the aliens, Starship Troopers, Starship Troopers. Or, you know, that kind of schlocky action movie or Commando or something. No, not Commando, Predator or something. You know, um, 
they, there's a squad of about five or six to introduce. They don't have time to introduce them. So they just sort of introduce their main character trait. Yeah. So you've got like the big burly dude or you've got the, the, the mad person who just likes killing. I love that yeah. in action movies. And that's exactly what they do here. And Alien, yeah, Alien does, does that brilliantly in the scene uh, at the canteen yeah. on, on the ship. And, and Aliens, an amazing, Aliens is an amazing film, which obviously has a massive influence over... Um, this whole genre. This whole genre, yeah. yeah. Totally. And um, yeah, no, you're right. And, and actually, I thought as, as sort of um, formulaic in that way as it was, I actually thought the banter was a bit better in this Yeah, bit. Yeah, I think, I think like... There is a difference between just formulaic and boring in that sense and yeah. being very much genre fiction. You know, when you come to genre fiction, there are points that have to be hit. And yeah. it's slightly different from just being formulaic. The, the, this book is super formulaic, but is very much trying to be like one of those action uh, action movies in a book to its detriment yeah. at some points when it's like that might work in the movie of this book but it doesn't work in the book of the book um <laughs> but let's let's introduce these people and take yeah. as much time as the book takes to introduce them so so, so we have um hacker yeah uh, who is like the old veteran now this brings <laughs> i have to go back to this i'm sorry but what is the deal with age in these books, right? Because yeah. we're, we're later on told that Nathaniel Garrow, the main character, has been around since, I think it says he's been around since the Emperor was like gathering together all the Primarchs. Yeah, he's, and, he's part of the um, Dawn Raiders, who, yeah. um, that's the name of the Death Guard before Mortarion is discovered. Yeah, and so... In what sense is he not old and this guy Hacker is old? I don't really... Like, well, how they, does it... they do try at the start to um, make it seem that Garrow is old. Right. Um, he, he's not described as um, like Hacker as being... Or I act on Cruise as being this <laughs> kind of, um, you know, uh, old war-bitten veteran. So maybe it's just like a... a state of mind or something that they're trying to make age seem but it is it makes me feel like we're deeply missing something in these books because although we do talk about um age and becoming old and stuff they keep harking on it as if it's a huge plot point or something and i think i'm missing something <laughs> I, I mean, but i'm sure i'm not because there's not much hidden in these books <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> Hacker, uh, to compare him to Iacton Cruz, he comes across much more as an actual grizzled, effective veteran. And this other guy we meet is called Temeter. Um, yeah, he is another captain. He's not in the squad. Yeah. Um, he, uh, I, I mean, maybe you should take this. I can't even, I finished the book this morning. I can't describe him at all. I I don't know who he is. He's basically <coughs> a line of text in my mind. I got confused because there's a some dialogue early on where him and Hacker are sort of bantering away, and I kind of thought he was going to be one of the main uh, friends of uh, Garrow and and 
be involved in all that chat but then he kind of just drifted out of it and then this other guy Decius came in yeah who was a, a younger member I, of girls I, I, I like him I, I he is the archetype in um the groups that we talked about in action movies that I like the most um, what? so uh let me pull up the names of the whole team so we've got um we've got Pyral and Solandesius um and these are they're fairly similar um there th- we see them betting over the color of the blood of the alien species that they're going to quit that they're going to kill so obviously these are the younger brasher um hotheads um who, who are going to die we know that because we <laughs> meet them um and these are always the you know the fairly new to the group fairly new to the squad um the older guys keep them going and you know quip with them about their <clears throat> their relative youth but secretly are really happy that they're there and yeah. to have that injection of youth um i just want to just want them to stay alive for the for the next few months so that they can you know teach them a little bit yeah there's a, a bit where hacker pretty much explicitly says that about decius doesn't he when they're when decius is playing some sort of board game yeah um so and another important character is uh garo has a uh hewitt or a What's the other word they use for him? He's got a guy that... He's the house carl. House carl, that's it. Um, who, who is a guy called Caleb who had tried to become a space marine, failed some sort of brutal test that he, that he needed to do to become a space marine, and normally when people failed these tests, they died in the process, or it says something like they killed themselves out of shame that they yeah. couldn't get in. But he, he survived and he became... He's happy with his role. He he is just a normal human. He's unaugmented, um, and yeah, he he is a, a basically a body servant almost, um, and gets um, Garrow's war gear ready, cleans up <coughs> after him, serves him food. I think is probably what he does, um, and he sees his role as being one of high honor because he's still serving the legion, but. Everyone else, Grilgore especially, look on him as like this uh, sort of monument to failure. Yeah, and and they talk about how this practice is kind of a tradition of the of the Legion going back a long way. So suggesting it goes back to the, the Dawn Raiders was that Dusk Raiders are called the, sorry, um, and and that Garrow is still attached to the to these sort of traditions. Um, and he, so as well as all his kind of um, work of, I don't know, polishing Garrow's armor or whatever else he does, he flits about the the ship and picks up a lot of information. Yeah, uh, th- there are uh, there is a few more folk in in the squad. Uh, Voyan is oh, yeah. uh, he is the apothecary, uh, so he's the healer of the group, um, and will come in a little bit during this story and the other one who is mentioned and doesn't quite he, he's not given enough time he's he's, he's called Sendek and uh, he's the bookish one right. so uh, whenever Pyre and Decius are like gambling over 
the color of the alien's blood that they're going to meet for the first time. <laughs> Sandik is sitting at the side, reading a data slate and basically saying, I, I've read about the, the alien species. I know exactly what it is. And he, I, I, I like these guys as well because these are, they're normally thought of quite badly because they're not, they're not uh, ultra-masculine uh you know always in in your face talking about murdering he whenever he's introduced i sort of see him with like a little pair of glasses on the end of his nose reading <laughs> reading an old tome it's gonna it's gonna make, it was gonna say it just makes me think of like a i don't know a vietnam war movie where you'd have you know a sort of reedy guy disheveled looking guy with with a pair of glasses sort of reading a book in the background while the rest of them like exactly and and um <laughs> Oh, he's the university boy, (laughs) you know, as if, you know, he's not quite the equal to us who have just come from, you know, the mechanic shop in Ohio or somewhere. He's from Yale. But it would turn out that they actually had a, you know, they all had a strong bond. Indeed, he'll, he'll save somebody's life and their eyes will meet. And when that happens, they'll both nod and he'll, he'll be one of the boys. (laughs) <laughs> um anyway uh so we've got all these characters and we begin the the time frame in which we begin is going back from where we ended in the previous book and um it's before the death card have met up with horus and all of that and they're engaged in a conflict against uh, an alien civilization called the the jorgo the yorgo i was going with yorgo Yorgo, okay. Um, and I thought there was a very kind of um, classic 60s or 70s sci-fi vibe about this whole yeah. bit. Because they, they live in one of those, like, you, you ever seen those old, like, NASA concept drawings from, like, the 60s or maybe earlier uh-huh. of, like, cylinder worlds as, as a... Uh, and this was at the end of um, that film Interstellar as well, wasn't it? The... the um, they depicted one of these worlds people living on a like that's a way humans could it was a concept for how people could live in space basically was they could make this sort of big cylindrical structure and it would have gravity all around it so people could you know yeah have their and, houses and, 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 and farms you, you live on the inside surface of this uh rotating <coughs> cylinder and the rotation gives you the gravity that you need and yeah it, it really it seems like a when I was picturing it, it was always in the style of like an Asimov novel cover, you know, yeah. like a, a painted um, depiction of this world. It was called the Bottle World, wasn't it? Like, yeah, like those. Um, I can't remember. One of them is called Chris Foss. I can't remember the other names. Those artists who did the a lot of those kind of covers and were the inspiration for um, that's what like the game No Man's Sky. That's right. That's right. I I remember. I bought that. Um, there's a Chris Foss sort of coffee table book that, cool. that I bought after No Man's Sky came out. And uh, yeah, it's really great. And and also the aliens that they're fighting, I thought they, they were just the kind of, to, in a slightly different way, go back to sort of 60s and 70s vibe. Uh, I could just imagine these aliens, when, I, when they were described, I, I imagined them in like bad special effects, you know? <laughs> Uh, I I didn't like I didn't like how they were described. Actually, I they're, they're sort of spindly. What are they? I, they 
it was interesting the way they were described is in that they weren't all described at once it was sort of you picked it up a little bit as you went and uh, which was good but when you got the full impression of them they're just like spindly hands almost <laughs> i thought they were just like they're sort of i don't know your classic kind of martian that's just a big green i don't know maybe they weren't green maybe i'm just imagining that but a big like sort of shape with like three tentacles or something yeah, coming off them they're a tripod of legs within a tripod of like army tentacle-y things right um but they um they modify themselves so that every one of them has got like um mechanical features as well yeah um and basically as you would imagine the death guard come and destroy this elegant spacecraft and well basically they go on they, they get on board this thing they send people down and they i don't know blow up some facilities or whatever and make it crash into a sun to cut a long story short but i think the significant part of this for the the narrative is that with the death guard at the start of the book are this new faction almost called the sisters of silence um the first almost the first women that we see you know there there are one or two uh women in the previous books this is a sort of i don't know what you would call them like a warrior monk warrior nun Kind, kind of, of yeah. uh, order of women who give themselves uh, when they become full sisters of the of their order, uh, give a vow of silence and become awesome warriors. And they're kind of like witch hunters, aren't they? Like they're yeah, they they're called um, they're, a number of different terms are given to them, but we I think this may also be the um, the first time. Psychers are probably are um, properly mentioned, and these sisters are known to be uh, nulls. They're called. They sort of uh, cancel out all psychic uh, abilities within their you know surrounding area. They join the Death Guard in their attack on the Yorgo, which gives that we sort of by their presence we know that there are psychers amongst them somehow. Yeah, and. Um... There's a, a point at which Garo, along with one of the sisters, encounters a one of the aliens who is giving off psychic vibes. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that sounds stupid. That is basically it. You know, well, <laughs> we're not underselling that. <laughs> but there's like, Garo, does he not sort of, does the alien not kind of put something in his head with its yeah. psychic abilities yeah now the, he encounters this sort of enormous version of the aliens and um in doing so like it, he says there was a there's kind of like a flavor to this uh alien and he feels like he's trying to get away rather than just attack them and he's <laughs> the, the alien is carrying some form of bundle that it's protecting and uh, Garo makes straight for it and basically kills the giant creature and unwraps the bundle that it's been carrying and finds this sort of conjoined larval state of the of the alien. And as he goes to kill it, it 
speaks in his head and talks about um, how it sees tomorrow and that everything Garu worships will die. And then as it goes to say the next sentence, it is shot through the head. (laughs) It sort of explodes. And Garu comes to, and one of the Sisters of Silence comes over and has saved him. And they have a moment of recognition between the two. What I wanted to bring up was the Sisters of Silence are human-sized women, but they are clearly far better than other humans have been depicted in the past. They, there is a, a level of respect between them and the Astartes that um, is not given to just normal army units. Yeah. And uh, it is interesting. And also, it's good in the way, like, there is a, a moment where Garu saves the life of one of the sisters and in doing so gets his helmet ripped off by uh, one of the warriors or one of the aliens um, he kills the alien with the, the help of the sister that he saved and the sister like picks up his helmet <coughs> brings it over and gives it to him and it's th- there's this real sort of sense of equality between them like yeah. equalness in stature and um, she gives him the helmet he takes it nods and she runs off back into battle and it, it it, it could have been written the other way around where um, the Astartes, you know, picks her up and says, you know, back on your feet, back into the battle. But it's the sort of tables are turned and it's, um, yeah, it's it's really good. That being said, it is still weird that the only women we see are all in like, a, they have to be in a group of women dedicated to service and dedicated to silence as well, yeah, which is yeah. weird. Like, yeah. It's a bit like how you, you know, um, like some of these settings, you'll get a group whose gimmick is being women. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Um, it's like we've got I mean, some bo- of these. Um, we've got some of these new women in the book. Um, it's <laughs> it's very interesting, but they're in their own. Yeah, yeah. We what we've done is we've sort of cordoned them off from the rest of the humans, and uh, they're in their own little ship. So that's where the women live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I think you're right. They 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 do. They are um, at least written as as quite interesting characters, and they are they are sort of serving directly the emperor. They're not. Yeah, they yeah that that's a good point to make is that they have different orders, and uh, Garu doesn't really know what they are, um, or even why they're there, but um, yeah, they're they're clearly working to the emperor's plan but uh, a different plan. Yeah. Um, so in the course of this conflict, Garo, I can't even remember exactly what it is, but he does something to impress his Primarch, because Mortarion ends up getting involved in this himself. And uh, <laughs> it, just, it just brought me back to how, like, how funny the the fanboyism of the space marines towards their primarchs. Yeah, <laughs> when they when they see them, it's like they just palpitating and want to kneel down, and can't like, help themselves because they're always like breath caught in their throats, or you know, their eyes widened when they saw the the sheer might of their primarch. It just makes it just makes me think of when you like see footage of like I don't know like the Rolling Stones or something in the nineteen sixties, and people were just you know, lose all sense of reason and just 
in their desperation to get on stage and like touch these I uh, I, I get a, a sort of sicker feeling than that I you know like, like <laughs> yeah. gr- grown men and women whenever they're in the presence of like the British royalty <laughs> like <laughs> buying and stuff and you're like, it's a bit like that <laughs> yeah, do you have any fucking self respect at all you, you, you're older than my dad and you're like debasing yourself to this other person and oh it's gross <laughs> um, yeah so basically, what happens this, next? I've this ends up with Garo being chosen by Mortarion to come with him. So they travel through space, and because they've been asked to join up with Horus, and then they uh, he, Mortarion has to go to this meeting, a meeting we've already seen. Yeah, this um, is this is the first crossover with the timeline of <coughs> the past books. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of meetings in these books, isn't there? There, <laughs> so, there are, a, yeah, there are a lot of meetings and a lot of um. A lot of talking. Garo, when he gets onto the Spirit of Vengeance, is that what it's called? The uh, the, the Sons of Horus ship. He yeah. sees that, he gets this vibe that all is not well with them. Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, he really does. And th- that's, that's weird. He seems to have a level of prescience that doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have exactly the same line noted down here that... Um, We'll come up to in just a second about when when the lodge starts to become. Oh yeah, entered. yeah, that's very yeah, that's very clear when in, in that. Um, but <laughs> there's a great line in this meeting. Um, so we've met Angron before. He's a very, um, he's very angry. I think <laughs> very angry. And this, I think that's something that we haven't really harked on in the past. Is that Angron is really, he's he's mad. He's really upset. <laughs> so at this meeting. <laughs> At this meeting, um, but the description of Angron's appearance in this meeting says that he has a, a quenched fist of a fist. Yeah, very good. I think that's actually pretty good. No, like that. I, I mean, it is. It's part of those like those little gems of writing that we find in all these books. But it works as well, like a quenched fist of a fist. I can. I can see that face. I think we've all met people with <laughs> Exactly. Garrett, there's stuff about the Lodge here, and I've noted it down here. I can't remember exactly what the line is, but page 116, Garrow has sort of jarring prescience about the Lodge. Um, he, yeah, he basically, he sees the exact problem of the Lodges, but not just, like, the overarching reason why, like, secretive confraternities within a, a unit might be bad he basically sees the future almost like uh, he sees that the lodge will be a source of um betrayal and um and full of traitors and that's exactly what it turns out to be yeah because the lodge is you get um it makes it pretty clear early on that the lodge is pretty deep rooted in the death guard uh even and, sort of from the start of the story, and and uh, Mortarion knows about it. He actually asks Garrow, "Why are you not a member?" Yeah, and Garrow says it, and uh, basically lays out exactly the the entire source of the heresy. Basically, he says it's possible that this will happen without knowing that in about a couple of days it will happen, and um, Mortarion just goes. Oh yeah, no, it's uh, it's fine that you're not a member. I just wanted to know why you uh, 
You don't like these these lodges. And then he mm-hmm. says something really crazy, like um, Garrow says, "Are you ordering me to become a member?" And Mortarian says, "Oh, I can't order the lodges to do you anything." And that is a crazy line for for a Primarch to speak, and should have sort of raised more questions in Garrow's mind, but uh, it didn't. And conversely, there's a situation where one of uh, someone who's uh, beneath Garrow in the chain of command, part of his, uh, what are they called? What's the subdivisions of the Legion called? Oh, I, I'm. I, uh, well, he's a captain, but I've just been calling it a squad as, um, right. a, as okay. a sort of generality. So part of his sort of general squad, you've mentioned already Merrick Voyen, the apothecary. He oh, traitor. <laughs> Sorry, no. Uh, so he, so Garrow, even though it's quite widespread in the Death Guard to be part of the Lodge, Garrow, because he doesn't like it, then it's expected in his, amongst his squad, not to be a part of it. But uh, Merrick Voyan comes and, or he gets found out that he's in the Lodge, and they have a kind of um, discussion about this. And Garrow, um, he deals with it like. A grown-up deals with problems like normally space marines treat everything like oh, oh you must be loyal you know to me it's a, it's just like the most 14 year olds version of uh, being a man <laughs> you know what i mean like um but he he basically says like voyan um you've kept this secret i'm disappointed in that but i'm not your dad you can do what you want but just realize that it's going to take some time for you to gain back everybody's trust. And you're like, wow, that's a, that is what a normal human being does in some adversity. Yeah, so, so when Garrow and Voyan were having this discussion about Voyan's membership of the Lodge, this is where Garrow comes out with what I thought was a jarring piece of prescience about the Lodge, where he says to Voyan, he's, when he's, he's, he's said to him, okay, you can be in the Lodge, etc., etc., um, and he says, but I will have a pledge from you. Promise me, here and now, that if the Lodge ever compels you to turn from the face of the Emperor of Man, you will destroy that medal and reject them. Yeah. So, so like... Bullshit. S- he suddenly jumped ahead to seeing this... I don't know. Yeah. It's, no, you're weird, right. Like, it, it, it's, it, it completely breaks the fiction, I think. Like, somebody... N- none of the Legion, not even one person, would allow something to just go by if they thought that it had even the smallest possibility of that happening. like uh, Here's Garrow just sort of very easily jumping to that conclusion. Um, it doesn't kind of doesn't make much sense. That being said, I did feel that some of the descriptions, both on, on the, in terms of the Sons of Horus and amongst the uh, Death Guard, the, of Garrow sensing a shifted mood, I thought they were that captured that feeling better than often it did in the previous books uh, about the sense of it's something not being right, you know, and, uh, and it's things. not something I picked up on. I have to say, cause I just thought it was just a couple of passages really, but he just kind of said that Garrow was sensing something was not right. And I thought it was a bit, yeah. Like whenever, um, that's that first moment of the crossover of timelines that we mentioned before, when they go to Horace's, 
Lupercal courts. There is a good sense that Garu is uh, really uncomfortable. <laughs> like uh, he's looking around at other Primarchs, he feels a little bit out of his um, out of his comfort zone. And then he hears the um, the recording that they play back of uh, the sedition on Istvan. And he is shocked by it, and he looks around and sees that Garviel is is shocked by it as well. There is a real good sense of of being awkward. And I think like, I think maybe that's down to this book sort of condenses the journey of a legion from you know all being fine into heresy into one book, whereas in the yeah. previous three books it was dragged out over three books. And I sometimes feel these stories are more successful when. You know, they just get things done more quickly. You know, yeah, maybe. Like, this is the point where, like, I I was sort of pretty excited by the start of this book in that I was like, oh, it's just going to be a one shot action movie of a book, and then we got to this point where the timelines sort of overlap, and I thought, okay, maybe they're going to do something a little bit interesting here, and that they're going to examine these things that we already know about from different points of view we're going to learn uh we've already been at this lupercal court so they're not just going to rehash the same thing they're going to reveal other things that happen to the different legions and i thought that's there's a real possibility of something interesting happening here but unfortunately they they really don't they all they do is rehash the same thing i mean it's what it gives you yeah, I know what you mean. I, I mean, I, I, that being said, I did. I quite enjoyed this first half of this book overall. Um, I suppose the only thing that really adds is the specific story of Garrow and what happens to him, which might lead to different things being done in the second half, I guess. We, uh, there's a line that I want to get to that uh, I, I can't quite remember where it fits into the, the, the book, but... Um, Grulgor and Typhon, again, this is another jarring moment. Um, they they basically they basically talk about uh, their own treachery with each other and they come to the agreement that they will both be traitors in the space of about two lines. Yeah, that, yeah I, I have a note about this as well and it's similar to what we've just said about exactly, Garrow's exactly. prescience. And I, it's weird how because it's like the heresy isn't an out in the open thing amongst the Death Guard at this point. No, I mean there's obviously Typhon, and some of them at the top level know about it, but Grogor doesn't know about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and and Typhon just goes so Ignatius. Like if you were given the choice between the Emperor or the Primarch, who would you choose? And Grogor goes, "Oh, the Primarch, easy." And yeah, that's it. <laughs> like and straight it, up. And it and it's, it's it goes beyond that even they kind of I'm sure I'm sure they sort of talk about there's basically there's something's coming up something big's coming up where there's going to be uh, you know basically referring to the the big moment of betrayal and Grogor like you say just so easily accepts this despite all we've been told about how unthinkable it was for space marines to even entertain the you know yeah. hardly even engage with the concept of fighting each other but. Um, Anyway, uh, there, there's a line here um, that uh, when Garu and Mortarian are traveling to the Lupercal's court, there's a line that um, uh, Garu says about, um, I was expecting some remembrancers here. Isn't this, because 
I, I've heard that the, a lot of remembrancers are uh, are traveling with the the war master, and isn't this a big point in history where there are lots of legions together? We're planning on attacking Istvan. Shouldn't they be here to rem- uh, to remember it? And his primarch Mortarion says this line: um, "The remembrancers are." Those gang of ink fingers. <laughs> Let me get through this. Sorry. Those gangs of ink fingered scribblers on Salon Intelligentsia. <laughs> I know. I, as soon as I read that, I was like, "Oh, that'd be good to put on a that's a good like a twi- Twitter profile or something, <laughs> wouldn't it?" As your description, <laughs> ink fingered scribbler on Salon Intelligentsia. <laughs> that I mean, I that is good writing. Like honestly, that is beautiful. Um, I just love the the sort of complete anti-intellectualism uh, of that line. It's just like we're fighters, we're fighters. These these weak ass humans. I loved it. <laughs> so um, anyway, after the the meeting on on Horus's ship, they so we go we go back further over stuff we've already seen in terms of. The, they start the attack on Istvan by going to the moon of Istvan, ostensibly to, or they think, to knock out communications for the full attack on the planet. Um, and they, so they encounter this ziggurat thing inside a dome where the the Istvanians mount a defence. And, the, and war, the, the first appearance of a war singer. Yeah, so the war yeah. singer up on the top. So this is the scene in the previous book where Eidolon... Did his sort of chaos roar to overcome the the war? <laughs> yeah. So the, the main the main action here is Garo getting hit by what the book describes from the war. <laughs> I've, I've written this down as well. <laughs> Why is it always music things that end up being the funniest lines? Um, but anyway, he is hit by what they call a hammer made of hymnals. <laughs> no, that's not the line I wrote down. <laughs> Are you going like Yeah, a hammer made of hymnals. I think that was brilliant. Which and that goes completely against the line which I've written down. Uh, um, I want to read it in the way that it should be read because okay. this line um, is in the middle of battle. It, it, all the lines are short; they're clipped. So <clears throat> I'll try and I'll try and do this right. So. The war singer hadn't simply torn Garrow's leg from its socket; she had sheared it off with a serrated blade of pure sound. <laughs> So we've got, we've got, we've got sound being both as blunt as a hammer, and as sharp as a serrated blade. And you're like, come on, what is it? Sound can be anything. Oh, uh, serrated. She'd sheared it off with a serrated blade of pure sound. <laughs> like there are things you know when you have you read um, uh, Lovecraft. That. Some some of his stories. You know, he doesn't describe anything. Like everything he does um, is so alien to the human mind that it's indescribable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like that line appears over and over and over. And after a while, you're just like, well, I mean, give it a shot. You know, just try to describe it. You are a writer. <laughs> um, but somehow, Lovecraft is successful at creating this really weird um, sensation. And then you've got lines like a hammer made of hymnals. I, I that does not create any image in my head. I don't I don't know what that means. Neither do I know of a sound that's so sharp it can cut, 
cut your leg off. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I can't. I can't picture anything like that in my head. Anyway, just from the assault of these various um, sound weapons, Garrow ends up losing a leg, basically. And I've just described how it was sheared off by the blade of pure sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. But, um, he ends up back on, on their ship and gets a... Um, Sweet prosthetic. Made, yeah. made out of brass, which doesn't seem right. And uh, this is where he goes into a kind of uh, trance state, I guess. Yeah. While he's recovering from... Um, yeah, the, and there... <laughs> There is mention, I wasn't going to bring this up, but there is a bit of a space marine biology in this. They they have something, I don't quite know what it does, and I'm almost certain it can't be pronounced this way, but it is, it's spelt this way. There's a thing called the Susan membrane. <laughs> Did you read that? No, I did not read that. Oh, I must have done, but I can't remember it. The um, S-U-S-A-N. That's Susan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Susan membrane. Now... I can't, I can't quite think of what, how you should pronounce that if it's not the Susan membrane. <laughs> the Susan membrane right next to the Sharon membrane. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but the, the line that I wrote down, and I, I see in the notes that you've shared that you have written this down as well, but it's, it forms part of a good line. Hakur, old blade. Out of respect for you for your service and record, I won't consider your obstreperous manner to be discourteous <laughs> to my rank, but do not make mistake what I just said for a request. I see, I know obstreperous because I read a bunch of like Victorian novels and stuff. <laughs> like it is it is very old hat that word. It is like Dickensian, I suppose. But yes, it uh it really stands out in this book. <laughs> so in his sort of trance state, Garrow sees like he sees like chaos symbols, which are the same things that he saw in Horus's Lupercal's court, and that he saw in Isvan Extremis. And it seems like the Emperor saved him essentially. Um, I thought more it was probably the saint, the uh, what you call her, Keeler. Yeah, yeah, uh, and he yeah the the line that goes through his head is something, blah blah blah. The Emperor Protects. And we forgot to mention, but it's only really relevant now, so it's fine, uh, that Caleb, <laughs> his his um, his house carl, is a lictitio divinitatis well done. devotee. Um, uh, yeah, no, we only find that out at this point anyway. Yeah. Um, no, there is there is a mention early on. Oh, is there? Um, yeah, like right towards the beginning, just a, a very sort of, you know, something-something ellipsis yeah. type mention. Um, and... Uh, but this is where he's been praying with the with the texts of of the cult, yeah, over Garrow's body, basically. Yeah, that, at this point, like he comes to and is told that um, you haven't been out that long. We're just making preparations to go to Isfahan and, and sort of put the the sedition to the sword, basically. And but is told that he hasn't been cleared for battle. And he's not happy. Yeah, and then, um, and then it ends up being that the orders are for the odd couple of Garrow and Grogor to stay behind, and their orders are going to be to take over this ship called the Eisenstein and 
and to kind of watch out for I don't know ships escaping. But as Garrow points out, he's like they've no evidence that the Isvanians would have ships to to escape with or whatever. Yeah. Um, basically, when they're the, so they get on board, they meet the the kind of human crew of the ship. Grolgor starts stomping about and goes off to do his own thing, and turns out what he's doing is there's a suspicious a thunderhawk that raises Garrow's suspicions comes over to the because um, it's got no life signals aboard it and it turns out this is carrying all the viruses all the virus stuff to be putting the bombs to fire down onto Isvan as to um, kill yeah. all the I think they are exactly how you would draw a virus bomb if you didn't know what they were they're the um the little things you know the film the rock i was just gonna say the yeah. exact same thing yeah that's exactly what it made me think of yeah. string of pearls configuration uh <laughs> yeah they're basically glass balls full of green virus goo yeah and uh well as every virus should be depicted is green yeah i wouldn't be surprised if the rock was the exact visual reference being drawn upon here to describe yeah to describe these why not um, it's a great film and um uh Caleb sees this going on and I think he's on his way back to report to Garrow but the book ends with Garrow getting a signal on the Vox and it's a um, ship being chased and shot at by other space marine ships and this is the scene where Tarvitz is escaping to try and warn everyone down in this van and it's yeah. it basically ends with that conversation starting up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's it. That's I, it. Again, disappointed by the ending of this uh, because it was just like rereading passages from the other books, and it was like it felt like the author just like, well, let's uh, let's get everyone up to speed, and I I just felt like no, this is a book. This is a book I'm reading. <laughs> like you're meant to have a story to tell. Stop yeah. stop trying to get us to the start of the story and tell us the fucking story. Although, like, removed from that context and taken in isolation, I did sort of think this book was partly, I think, because it had more of a tight focus um, in terms of characters and points of view, it told a more effective story, as I say, in isolation yeah. than than the other books, maybe. You know, it just... Yeah, like, I remember saying last episode that I was really looking forward to this book and that I didn't really... I couldn't really remember anything about what happens in it, but that I really liked it. And now I'm thinking that it wasn't this book. Maybe it's like one or two down the line. That's not to say I didn't enjoy this book, because I actually did. But what I thought the this book was going to be about was um, the Eisenstein's flight in the warp. I think the second half is about that. Oh, okay. Okay, fair um, enough. So I think it would does move further away, because I guess the point at which... Well, we'll get on to this. No yeah, well, yeah, they, anticipating there, the story, but I think it, it... There can't be too much of the crossover because, yeah, they, it, it kind of flew through these moments that we already knew about, which is, yeah. you know, to its credit. And I'm sure they'll just give a little bit more about um, the war on the surface and then everything else will be new. So Yeah. yeah. I think partly why this was worked better as a story was much more of it was just from... Garrow's perspective, you know, or or someone close to Garrow in the in the narrative, like as I mean, as in physically close, like they went over to Decius's perspective quite a bit. Um, yeah, 
which I wasn't really sure why they were doing that, but he was uh, he was usually with Garrow, so it wasn't really, it was, it was pretty much the same perspective. And, and what I kind of like about Decius is that although he is that sort of young buck hothead, I don't quite know what to make of him uh, because he uh, is depicted as being... Um, well, obviously that young hothead. So you think, oh, he's prime chaos material. Yeah. But he's also like really fond of Garo. Yeah, yeah. Like so he's, a- he's the only one who, like, within a second of being introduced, I don't know how it's going to end for him. And that's good. That's the only person. <laughs> like, I've, you kind of know what's going to happen to all of the characters as they're introduced. You're like, oh, mate, you're not going to last beyond the end of this book. <laughs> but I don't know what's going to happen to him. So that's nice. I don't know, Neil. I feel like there's a lot of ambiguity about Grogor, you know? Like, <laughs> I quite enjoyed the first half of the split yeah, before the second totally. half. So. Totally. Um, I liked uh, the depiction of the Legion before the heresy, and um, I thought that bit was the best. Uh, and unfortunately, whenever they met up with the actual, the, with the birth of the heresy and the, the, the expedition, it sort of took a little bit of a it got a little bit messed up. It lost a bit of that focus, I think. Yeah, it did. It did kind of make me look forward to exploring other legions in the books to come. I, I've got no interest in learning anything more about the Sons of Horus. Um, they were real boring, but I think this may be my legion. Um, <laughs> your, your Death Guard, right? I think. I think so. I think. Or so. are you Dusk Raider? I mean, that's the. That's the that's no, the no, I could never be. No, that's a terrible name. Okay. Um, the, did you, do you remember the description of the Dusk Raiders? They are, I think they're grey, they, they had grey armour, but with a red arm, because oh, they yeah. are the bloody right hand of the Emperor. And I went, no, <laughs> you don't think of yourself in that sense, and you don't depict it in such a ham-fisted, shitty way. <laughs> we're, the right, we're, the, we're the bloody right hand of the Emperor, so how about we have a blood red right hand? <laughs> Mm, bit on the nose <laughs> uh, right cool well that's us then I think until next when, when's time. The, when is the next one um, the next one 26th 26th excellent so um, thanks everyone for listening again subscribe review tell people about the podcast all that stuff um, we're slowly growing in listener numbers or, you know, reasonably growing in listener numbers, I should suggest. It's not it's faster than I thought it would be. We sort of, um, we chose a podcast theme with a limited reach. <laughs> <laughs> not to mention an entire podcast subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're growing faster than I ever thought possible in that we do have some listeners, which is crazy. But um, yeah, that's my bit. That's my spiel. Cool. Great. See you next time. <laughs> we always fuck that's, this that's up. your outro. We always shove <laughs> shove Neil five takes. Or whatever. <laughs> um, but right. I only it only takes me five takes because I don't want to have an outro like you just did. <laughs> See, I'm happy so, to uh, accept uh, the shit. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah. <laughs> um. What, like, yeah, I fuck you, it's not easy. It's not- <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh...
Thanks very much for listening. <laughs> we'll oh see you god. next. Oh my god! You you said the words, but your tone made it seem the complete <laughs> opposite. It is. There's no sincerity to this. Now. I, just want, I just want to end this. Like a, I just wanted to cut through this like a, like a sharp blade of sound. To just <laughs> ends it. Now ended. Sharp blade of sound. End over. Done. Right, Done. That's it. <laughs> okay. <laughs>